Uh, this I this one's my favorite. I think it's such a good starting place. Like it's it's fun. It's well, it's a horrible tragedy that's actually very sad. But it's fun because of one key component that we'll talk about. Something that I know you're very passionate about. Um, I know other people on Twitter are very passionate about. Um, but it's it's you know it's a fundamental food group. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. There's been uh, there's been more than one of these. Uh, I actually like that the second article has the exact same title. This is before yeah. <laughs> before anyone was like in peer review was like, yeah, you can't name it a thing that's already been done. Um, so that's that's a fun artifact. Oh, no, this is good. And I'm glad we're, we're we can, you know, we have to come up with wrists and bants, man. We need a cold open for this first episode. Yeah, I know. How are we going to do that? What are we going to do? I don't know. I think if we don't try too hard. Hopefully the rest of the episode keeps up that energy from the intro. Um, I guess we should introduce ourselves. Would you like to go first? Sure. Uh, you might know me as uh, Screaming Pectoriloquy on Twitter. Uh, Kalimovirus is is the handle. Um, I'm still not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I've been pronouncing it. Is it not like a known – like I, I know you did some like plant research. Is that not like a known plant pathogen or something? It, it is one of the most famous plant pathogens uh, because of the 35S promoter from the Kalimovirus. It's, uh, it's a very strong, constitutively expressed uh, eukaryotic plant promoter. Well, I hope that one day science finds out how to pronounce that correctly. <laughs> um, wonderful. Well, I am uh, – my handle is at pathologi2. Pathologi1, that's like pathology with guy. Uh Pathologi was taken um, by someone cleverer than me who thought it at first. So Pathologi too. Um, my name is Thomas Knotts, um, and I'm I'm here helping you today to talk about uh, this podcast. Which so I guess we should say welcome to Caduceus Wild. Yes, um, yes, welcome. And what is the mission statement of our podcast, Doctor Peck? I, uh, I I wanted I wanted Caduceus Wild to kind of focus on the. The always fascinating, sometimes frightening, and occasionally fantastic case reports that appear throughout uh, medicine's history and kind of use it as a lens to to talk about medicine, to talk about how medicine has changed uh, and to think about you know what we've done before and possibly even what we've forgotten and see where it takes us. Yeah, I think I think that's this is a really cool way I think to to kind of approach two things, which is one is there's stuff that goes into the everyday practice of medicine in every form, inside the hospital, outside the hospital stuff, stuff that people often get frustrated with or that um they just don't really appreciate why it's there. It's just the way it's always been done, but a lot of these things maybe it wasn't always done that way. And so once in a while some pivotal case report came along and change the practice. And I think by by looking at all these individual case reports about various diseases, toxicities, events, whatever, we're also kind of doing a case report of 
of medicine. Like this is the history of medicine, the good and the bad. Um, I think especially with some of this older stuff, there's going to be a lot of kind of eyebrow raising things that were totally acceptable at the time. And I, like, I certainly have no background in like, uh, medical anthropology, medical history, anything like that. So I'm approaching this totally from an outsider perspective. Um, but I just, I find it fascinating and, uh, I especially love how just like brief these little reports are. And I think we want to kind of convey that kind of brief little tidbit in this episode format um, of information of how it affects your daily life as a provider or as a patient um, and hopefully have a little fun with it too. Yeah, I think that's great. So how should we get started? But let's talk about hospital eggs because those are near and dear to your heart. I know you have posted uh, quite a bit about hospital eggs. Usually they're in odd shapes, um, cube eggs, if you will. They're geometrical. Yeah. And that I think that comes from them being made from a, a certain powder. Um, do you actually eat the hospital eggs? I do. I, I eat them um, and I enjoy them. Even if they have those pock marks, those oh. little air bubbles, uh, that's just like a like an aero bar if you ever have a chocolate bar from, from Britain, uh, but in egg form. And it, it feels good going down the gullet. Oh, God. It's awful. Absolutely awful. I have never eaten them. Um I know many people like to post pictures of eggs online, um, the hospital eggs. I know that was a bit of a meme for a while. Um, very strange, jagged geometric shapes, doesn't look natural. I think there's actually like an evolutionary revulsion you have. You know, you know, trypophobia where people see like small, <laughs> small pockmark holes or whatever and it like causes them great revulsion. Um, I actually knew a guy who was really afraid of stickers. Um, yeah, was, I think it's a trypophobia thing. I don't know, but. Yeah, the eggs do the same thing for me. Like, there shouldn't be, like, weird stalactite formations. It shouldn't look like the surface of an uncolonized planet from some sci-fi universe. It should it should be eggs. You want fluffy, large curds, um, and that is not what these hospital eggs are because they're frequently made from a powder, a freeze-dried powder instead of uh, actual raw eggs because it's much easier, it's cheaper, they last longer, you don't run into things like salmonella issues, and health and safety issues or something we'll talk about because we're going to talk about a case of uh, of when hospital eggs go wrong. Oof. Yeah, so this is, um, I think, getting right into it. So this happened in Oregon State Hospital, um, originally the Oregon Hospital for the Insane. So you you know you know we're, we're going way back here. This happened in 1943. I believe it was in no- November 18th, um, 1942. But let's talk a little bit about this hospital. So um, this case report, uh, is I don't know. Should we give away what it was? Because the title gives it away. Oh yeah, it, it's it's acute sodium fluoride poisoning. One of many case reports with that title. Yeah, which is this is not something I was familiar with before this article that this was even a thing. You know, fluoride for me was just a thing in water. <laughs> and as a hyper responsible pre med myself, I just focus on what the uses of fluoride are for for medicine. Um, I'll you know learning these things for the MCAT so one day I can be let's say, a Mohs micrographic surgeon. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so this is uh, from JAMA, 1943. Uh, William L. Lidbeck, Irvin B. Hill, and Joseph A. Beeman, all MDs. Um, Lidbeck is apparently a pathologist, which I just want to point out is really cool. They're like, uh, they're like the bean doctors, like yourself, only they have to know all that stuff for every organ, so like kind of smarter and cooler. Um, but yeah, uh, so this happened in 1943, um, Oregon State Hospital, originally Oregon Hospital for the Insane, uh, at the time, the most common causes of insanity 
quote, insanity, clinical term at the time, reported by the hospital were excessive living, that's in quotes, excessive living, liquor, narcotics, and venereal disease. So probably good old syphilis, I'm guessing. But excessive living, I think, is really funny because I think that's like that's like you're having too much fun. You're partying too hard. Um, and of course, this hospital offered, you know, top-notch therapies at the time. Um, uh, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, which actually is still in use today. And it's actually incredibly effective and kind of maligned. And actually, I think at some point we should probably talk about ECT. Absolutely. Uh, because it's, I think, uh, actually, we'll talk about a movie that sort of portrayed it in a negative light in just a second. Um, but they were doing ECT. They were also doing such uh, accepted practices at the time as eugenics, lobotomies, um, and then hydrotherapy. So, you know, getting in the pool, doing a little bit of uh, aerobics in the pool, not too hard on the joints, the kind of thing that like 80-year-old grandmas in Florida like to do. Um, but only it's in this, you know, dystopian, Kafka-esque uh, mental hospital um, or psychiatric hospital. But this was a small hospital, right? This was just your your run of the mill neighborhood hospital. No, it it was huge. <laughs> um, so it's I couldn't find how many beds it was at the time. But the most recent number is they brought it down to six hundred and twenty beds around. The article I I saw um, uh, pegged it at around twenty seven hundred beds. Oh my god. <laughs> It's 2,700 beds. That's huge. And it's just a psychiatric hospital at this point. Although I think like every – all society's undesirables, everything was labeled a psychiatric illness at the time and shoved in there. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Um, so, yeah, of note, this was the location of the filming for One Flew Over's uh, – One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So you kind – that's kind of all you need to know about this. <laughs> it's like what kind of place this was. Like, oh, this is the ur-dystopian – you know, institution. Um, and so, of course, ECT portrayed in that film as this awful, violent, horrible thing. Um, characters lobotomized at the end. Oh, sorry, I spoiled One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest Damn for it. anyone who hasn't seen that movie. Um, Come on, man. Yeah, that's. I, I feel like there's like a 10-year rule on spoilers. If it's over 10 years old, forget it. So, 1942, November 18th, uh, sunny evening, let's say. Dinner was eggs, which that's just weird. <laughs> I don't – dinner is like – or eggs are like a breakfast food or like in the hospital egg setting, it's a post-night shift like I need sustenance food. I'll be honest. I, I did not realize until you, after you pointed it out that this was a, a, a dinnertime fiasco. I yeah. Just, I, I saw eggs and I immediately thought, oh, this is this is happening in the morning, which – Makes it even worse considering what kind of staff is going to be on hand in the evening. Before I get canceled, I meant quantity, not quality. Yeah, so this is like not the ideal time for any of this to happen. I mean, it's never an ideal time for what's about to happen, but um, absolutely like end of shift, like nighttime staff um, when this is all going down. But, you know, amongst maybe the many sort of unethical things happening in the 40s at this time, feeding eggs for dinner, paramount, like – Number one, like not a thing. We don't do breakfast for dinner. That is dinner is nighttime foods. Breakfast is a morning time food. Correct. So we have our eggs and uh, and patients, you know, they don't they don't love them. Some of them say it's kind of salty. Some of them say it's kind of soapy. Right. And this is hundreds of patients getting these eggs for dinner. So some of them just refuse to eat it. But some of them uh, do. And about two to four hours after dinner. 263 patients become ill. 
So, Dr. Peck, I want you to imagine, all right, you're an intern, you're you're the night float, and you get the page that in your 2,000-bed hospital, 263 people are simultaneously violently ill with bloody vomiting and diarrhea, quote, abruptly and sometimes simultaneously. People are experiencing hives, urticaria, uh, a thick mucoid discharge from the nostrils. Uh, some of them have carpopedal spasm, so that's going to be wrist and uh, foot spasm, um, and convulsions. And a lot of them progress to just complete cardiovascular collapse. Can you imagine if 263 patients at the same time all of a sudden need like ICU-level care in, a, in, in the nighttime in a, in a hospital? Well, my first question to you on November 18th, 1942 would be, what's an ICU? Yeah, that's fair. All right. I'm, I'm speaking from, from present time's bias. Do you want to talk a little more about that? Like what is – I don't know anything about, about what was going on in the 40s. You've done some research into that. Yeah. So uh, critical care as a distinct specialty really took off with the advent of the ventilator, particularly with the development of positive pressure ventilation and endotracheal intubation. And that makes sense because patients on these ventilators need round-the-clock monitoring and adjustments, something that's familiar to every modern ICU. But up until the 1950s, the only available therapies for respiratory assistance were a handful of drugs and negative ventilation systems. Now, negative pressure ventilation is the normal state of affairs for our respiratory system. Uh, diaphragm descends and our chest wall expands and atmospheric air enters the lower pressure system we just created. Then we relax and push it all back out. With artificial negative pressure ventilation, your body goes inside a sealed chamber, your head sticks out with a cuff around your neck, and the pressure in the chamber interior is decreased, causing your chest cavity and therefore your lungs to expand. Uh, these devices have been around since the late 1800s, but they were most famously visible during the polio epidemics of the 1920s and 30s in the form of the iron lung. Uh, one children's hospital in Boston even designed a negative pressure ventilator room where multiple patients could lay in bed with their heads positioned outside the room and huge pistons in the ceilings would cycle pressure in the entire room. Uh, this had the advantage of allowing for easier patient care since nurses could actually access the body of the patient within the room instead of the patient being sealed inside an, an iron box. But it wasn't until 1952, during an outbreak of polio in Copenhagen, that the true value of positive pressure ventilation was demonstrated. An anesthesiologist proposed positive pressure ventilation via tracheotomies in the necks and manual bags to deliver air in and out. So now you have hundreds of paralyzed patients all undergoing tracheotomies and receiving round-the-clock manual bagging from an army of medical students. And mortality was dropped in half almost overnight. But it was a huge logistical undertaking having so many critically ill patients all over the place. And eventually, uh, the lessons learned from this led to the foundations for the modern intensive care unit uh, that we know today. But let's go back to the eggs at uh, Oregon State Hospital. This this took place a decade before any of that. Uh, these people aren't just having nausea and vomiting. They're starting to have cardiovascular collapse. Uh, their diaphragm is becoming weaker and weaker as the calcium becomes sequestered in their bodies, and they need support that they really can't get. And the interventions at that time, they just 
They were incredibly rudimentary. Can I read for a second what uh, what they actually tried? Oh, absolutely. Let, let, let's see. Yeah, this is my, so this is straight from the report in the JAMA article. So, right, 263 patients, all of a sudden, violently ill. No one really knows what the cause is. I think at this point it hasn't even been tied to the eggs. It took 22 hours before they figured it out. Exactly. So 22 exactly. hours of all this chaos without knowing what's going on. Yeah, and most of the patients who, who succumbed, 47 people died from this uh, sodium fluoride toxicity in two to four hours of ingestion, um, which is, I mean, just incredible. I mean, l- let's say even if there was an ICU, right, these 47 people, let's say they were the sickest. I mean, what's the largest ICU in the country? How many beds? I mean, they're just, they're, they're, there were already patients presumably in, you know, in the most acute care setting, so the beds weren't empty. I mean, it's just, it's wild. Uh, so they tried, they don't know what's going on, so they tried 19, good old 1940s medicine. So we have a teaspoon of salt and sodium bicarb in a glass of water served as gastric lavage, so like a little bit of Alka-Seltzer. Um, shock was combated with respiratory and cardiac stimulants. Uh, the following were used. Um, nicathamide, which I'm not familiar with. I think you know a little bit about that. Yeah, so nicathamide is this, um, it's a derivative of uh, the nicotinic compounds, and it was used as a respiratory stimulant. It, it was used kind of kind of similar to how acetosolamide is used for uh, altitude uh, sickness or, or uh, to get a better respiratory response there. Uh, but just thinking about it, just, you know, I don't know too much about a drug that's not really used anymore, except for by uh, doping enthusiasts and, and bicycle races. But uh, I don't think the mechanism of action would be of any assistance here because the, the, the pathophysiology is your diaphragm's not moving. It's not, uh, it's not a decline in your respiratory uh, center. It's, it's your muscles aren't moving your lungs. So, I mean, they, they tried it because that's all they had, but uh, it, it's one of those things that we just – we don't really use anymore. If somebody's not breathing, you you breathe for them, uh, which we have. Now, is this – you said it's a – yeah. You said this is a, like a nicotine-derived compound. Is this like when like in the 40s, like doctors would be like, oh, more doctors <laughs> smoke Chesterfields? They were just like giving them cigarettes. They're so like, ah, smoke one of these. You're going to feel great. This, um, this, okay, this, so is the, like, this is a smoke them if you got them scenario, uh, if, if anything. <laughs> they're just yes there's we're gonna we're gonna give all their patients uh med by vape um <laughs> right so they tried this nicathamide they tried epinephrine caffeine with sodium benzoate and neosinephrine which i'm guessing is some kind of early presser uh you know neosinephrine um, still used today that's a uh, phenylephrine okay. uh ne- oh, okay it's just another just name the, just the the brand name or the uh yeah the brand name for it which is that levo i can never remember which no one, which... levo is norepinephrine Okay. Okay. Leave a fed. Okay. Um, so all of those things. And then my favorite one on here, which is a uh, whiskey by mouth. They tried whiskey by mouth. So just like a little, little hair of the dog for your, your vomiting blood. You're having bloody diarrhea. You're convulsing. Uh, you're probably not very conscious and they're just pouring a little whiskey down your gullet there. There, there's actually one more agent that they used, which will, which, which they used. For a different reason, but it was actually probably smarter than they realized at the time. They used magnesium sulfate as a purgative, uh, to try to get out, you know, whatever this mystery toxin, uh, was present. And we'll talk a little bit later about why that was actually probably a pretty good idea. 
Yeah, when we talk about the pathophysiology, that actually that's actually pretty fortunate. But uh, I want to talk about mag sulfate as a purge. That's that's a laxative effect, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So these patients are having diarrhea and vomiting, and the solution bloody. Yeah. And the solution was just let's just push it through. They they I think they talk about this. If you want to get onto the next session with the the autopsy about finding undigested food way, way, way in the distal gastrointestinal tract. That's that's the speed, velocity, and ferocity of how quickly all of this stuff was moving. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So, um, you know, so this happens uh, within 22 hours, I believe it was three patients, six patients, they got approved for autopsy. So, I mean, basically, night in this hospital was was hell. I mean, just suddenly... 200 people violently ill, 47 of them died. No one really knows why and nothing really worked to help them. So, you know, we're getting answers. We're, we're immediately getting uh, autopsies. Um, so once again, pathology coming in clutch for uh, <laughs> for figuring this out. So uh, the part of the case report that reads about the, uh, uh, about the autopsy says, in the most acute deaths, the mucosa of the stomach, duodenum, and first portion of the jejunum was edematous and hyperemic. The stomach contents were mucinous and contains large amounts of undigested egg. The colon was empty except for portions of undigested food, indicating the ferocity of the diarrhea. I love that 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 wording, the ferocity of the diarrhea. The mucosa here was unchanged. There was there was a general increased wetness. Um, do you have a better like clinical word for that? No, wetness is exactly what uh, you, you, it kind of maybe in, internal glistening. Yeah. Yo, the, the cut surface is tan, glistening, and da-da-da-da, that, yeah. that kind of language. All right. Yeah. Uh, An acute congestion of the abdominal viscera and the liver and kidneys were swollen. The lungs were ballooned at their edges with occasional interlobar petechial hemorrhages. That's That could be from the vomiting, I think. Um, sure. I don't know if that was related to the, the actual patho- pathophys, which we'll talk about in a second. There was no aspiration of the stomach contents. The heart showed de- showed decided dilatation of the right chambers, which contained fluid blood. The brain revealed only slight edema and hyperemia. That can be due to hypoxia after cardiac arrest. I think I'm not, I haven't done any forensic stuff. Sure. Um, when death was delayed, the only other changes consisted of petechial hemorrhages of the gastric and duodenal mucosa. In no case was increased fat noted in the liver. Very important to note that. I have no idea why, but they made sure to note that. Um, so after this autopsy, they run some tests on the, they recover the eggs. And they, I believe both they got eggs from the hospital itself and also from the undigested eggs. And they run some tests. And one of the things they do is there's no gas chromatography at this point. There's no, you know, the most, there's no, there's not really true spectral analysis. This is the 40s. Um, they do this test where they basically burn the substance and then etch it onto a glass slide. And some substances have characteristic patterns. And so one of, I believe it's any acid will do this. Um, but hydrofluoric acid will create a characteristic etching. So that's sort of what points them in the fluoride direction right away. So what seems, I'm sorry, go I, ahead. I, I think that's actually a little bit, uh, mixed around. I think what happened was the people who were responsible, uh, eventually, uh, eventually came forward and said, Oh, we made a bad oopsie. And it was during this, uh, investigation stage when they figured out, you know, what the likely culprit was, the, those methods were more just to kind of help quantify how much was exposed, how much each individual was exposed to of, of the individuals they, they autopsied. I don't think that was part of their investigative strategy, although I could, I could read it again and, and go over it, but I think no, the I, confession yeah. kind of 
the confession, which we'll get to kind of, kind of, you know, makes a lot more sense as to how they figured it out. Yeah. And well, that's, yes, I, I think you're right there. I think I am mistaken. Um, and talking, you know, we'll talk about, uh, there's a, there's a kind of a, a, a sad coda to this piece about oh, yeah. what really happened. Um, I don't know. Should we talk about the pathophysiology of, of sodium fluoride poisoning next, or should we talk about how it got into the eggs? I think let's talk about how it got into the eggs. Yeah. So this is, uh, a 1940s psychiatric institution. Um, and there are tons of patients there. Um, and some of them are being recruited to sort of help run it. Um, I can't imagine there was a ton of funding this time. Um, and also it was kind of believed that if we give these patients something to do, it's somehow going to be therapeutic for them. And so one of the patients was helping in the kitchen. So the way these wonderful cube eggs are made, well, in this case, not so wonderful, um, is frozen egg yolks are mixed with powdered milk. And so the powdered milk was kept in a basement um, in an open bucket. That's it. Just out, sitting in an unlabeled bucket, white powder. You can't miss it. Well, unfortunately, there was another bucket there, which was roach powder, an insecticide, and that is up to 90% sodium fluoride. So one of the patient helpers, when they, they started making the eggs, went to go get the powdered milk, and instead of including milk powder, they scooped tons of sodium fluoride into these eggs, very unevenly distributed. Um, and so that's the salty, soapy taste that a lot of these patients were getting. And the difference in outcomes is both based on the patient's sort of underlying substrate, who was healthier at the time, and also what the dose was that they got. The actual LD50, I believe in a, uh, so it's 44 milligrams per kg in a mouse. So in a 70 kg person, that's just over three grams, if I did the math right, which is not that much. Like if no. you actually look at it in a cup. Um, so the next time you brush your teeth, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. <laughs> But no, the, the, you know, there's, there's a couple of, you know, best guess for a lot of this literature is, uh, just based on what people have been exposed to and what they've survived, uh, from. But, you know, anywhere from five to 10 grams of, uh, sodium fluoride is just enough to, to, to kill you. Uh, but certainly less amounts can, can also either severely injure you or also potentially kill you. And, you know, one thing that uh, just one little excerpt, one last excerpt from this particular case that I want to read is just the amount of food eaten naturally varied, but it appeared that the more considerably demented patients who would be less discriminating in their food habits suffered more than others, which is just such a horrible way to put it. Like, I know what they're saying. They're saying like patients with sort of lower, you know, cognitive functional status were more likely to tolerate inedible food. And then they suffered because of it, but they had to say it in like the worst way. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the pathophysiology. So we now know that at this hospital, 263 patients got sick from sodium fluoride accidentally added to delicious geometric sort of, you know, you know, when they're, when they're, when Ripley and everyone are in the suits and they're walking across that planet that I used to know the name of. And they go to – before they find the alien eggs, like that kind of geometry, okay, is what we're talking about <laughs> in those rocks. Um, those eggs poisoned people and what was in them was sodium fluoride. And so there's two major things that happen here that cause morbidity and mortality. One, much more responsible for the mortality. So the first thing is that it, re, it, it, it becomes hydrofluoric acid in the GI tract yeah, and causes significant burns, which is where – which is where the bloody nausea and vomiting is coming from. You have all these bleeding wounds, basically, from these ulcerations, from the chemical burns. Um, very bad. And uh, f a quick U-world tip, 
uh, acid causes coagulative necrosis. So that's a little protective. <laughs> Basic is worse. That's your that's your U world tip for the day. Well, well um, hold, but then what hold, else happens? Is it, well, this hold is, on, hold yeah, on. Go ahead. Sodium fluoride, or not sodium fluoride, hydrofluoric acid. It, it you know it's a bad acid. You don't want to touch it. But our stomach already has hydrochloric acid in it, and that is like the wor- one of the worst acids. You you definitely want to want to touch that. I guess you know, like the amount is 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 going to be a big thing. But what's the 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 worst part? about um about oral ingestion is that you get almost immediate systemic absorption uh that that the hydrofluoric acid it you know it it doesn't dissociate as readily as a hydrochloric acid and if it's you know still in its bond in in molecular form it's going to be able to cross that mucosa fairly easily get into the tissues and start wreaking havoc there um but the the big problem you're going to find is that fluoride readily and avidly binds to your, your calcium and magnesium ions. And, you know, calcium fluoride and magnesium fluoride, they, these are not water-soluble substances. They are going to precipitate out pretty immediately. And so when you have that, you effectively have removed calcium and magnesium from your system, from from biologic activity. It's it's Now it's a little... It's a little tiny dust in your, in your cells, just kind of floating around. But, uh, you know, that's important because calcium is important for your depolarizations, your enzyme regulations. Magnesium is important for many enzyme activities. You're going to get your cardiac instability with, uh, hypocalcemia. You're going to get your muscle, you know, tetany with hypocalcemia. Uh, you're going to have, uh, seizures with your with your hypocalcemia, all, all things with the sudden drop in calcium uh, as the as the fluoride goes and steals it away. Uh, nerves in particular are going to be very susceptible to this, and if you get a high enough dose, um, you can you can have near instantaneous neuropathy or, or painful neuropathy. Nothing good happens with this kind of kind of exposure. So, in your professional opinion, as a future nephrologist electrolytes are important <laughs> yeah that's right everyone it's it's electrolyte time that's all we're going to talk about every episode it's going to be electrolytes <laughs> you, you you need the appropriate um, uh, uh quantity and ratio of electrolytes uh, to, to live yes that is my medical opinion <laughs> yeah well you you might uh you might absorb your magnesium calcium paracetamol but i'm different <laughs> um yeah, so profound hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia are the two big insults here. Um, and so that's why you mentioned earlier when they gave kind of mag sulfate to, to move things through the GI tract, try to get the poison out, that actually helped. Unfortunately, they didn't really do much with the calcium, which is probably the thing that yeah. caused at least like the arrhythmias that probably killed a lot of these people, uh, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. And and here's here's some speaking of arrhythmias. Uh, I'm I'm ganking this from uh, Gold Franks. Anybody who likes toxicology knows about Gold Franks is the I guess the gold standard textbook on it. Uh, they talk about how fluoride can be a, a direct inhibition of sodium potassium ATPase and uh, subsequently sodium calcium exchange. Um, when this happens, calcium will build up intracellularly. Uh, and you'll get hypocalcemia. Part of the reason you get hypocalcemia, 
Uh, but then because there's a buildup of calcium, you got too much cations intracellularly. So you got to get rid of some. Well, what's the intracellular cation? That's potassium. So you're going to uh, knock some potassium out as well, uh, which is why you can a lot of times see hyperkali- hyperkalemia with these cases. Um, and that's going to, to put you at uh, even further uh, uh, predispose you to some developing some arrhythmias. Um, some of the uh, literature on the subject they mentioned were experiments on dogs where uh, they treat them with quinidine, uh, which is a potassium efflux inhibitor. Um, and they saw that the toxic effects of fluorides were somewhat diminished. Uh, and then the same as well with amiodarone, which I like to think of as the everything bagel of antiarrhythmics. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is, uh, this is toxicology. Uh, so there are no controlled studies of these therapies in humans uh, because murdering your own test subjects has been frowned upon by the medical establishment since 1972. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is a challenge to anyone who's still listening at this point, which, you know, if you are, kudos to you. Um, find a case of unethical research that occurred after 1972 to disprove that joke we just made. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you can do it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, but you're not getting you're not getting intentional poisonings past the IRB. They are too quick for that. Thankfully, they, you you try to sneak it past, and they they catch you no matter what. But so so now you now you've got this problem. Now you've got this problem of fluoride toxicity, and if you ingest it like our our unfortunate patients with their eggs did, you know that's kind of the worst route to go because now it's you know, almost guaranteed to be in your system. Um. When you talk about management for these patients, you there's, you know, it's going to rely a lot on your history of of what happened, and we'll we'll talk, you know, not just ingestions, but other ways that people can can be exposed to fluoride toxicity. Um, one of the more common ways is like uh, if you, people used rust cleaner um, to to that's that uh, hydrofluoric preparation, and you know, people don't wear gloves, and people spill things, accidents happen. And gets on their hands most likely, or they spill some, or vaporize, and they breathe some in, get some inhalation injury. Um, there's also uh, there was a I, I saw there's in Iceland in like 1780 there was a volcanic explosion that released a large <laughs> cloud of um, hydrofluoric acid that killed like half the livestock there and led to a Good famine. Lord. So you know it can it, it will find you. And and I I did read there there is a natural mineral uh, formation of sodium fluoride. It's got some weird uh, geology names like villamorite or whatever the heck it's called. Uh, but it's a rock you don't want to touch. Um, but uh, so like dermal exposure is 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 bad. Uh, you, you know, there's no there's no like. Um, quick fluoride, serum fluoride levels that you can order in the lab it, it'll come back you know next week but you know you got you got to do management before you rely on that result so the real you know the real mainstay uh for this kind of management is you need to know the history of what what happened like well what were you doing what did you eat what did you what were you exposed to uh you get your serum chemistries to track your electrolytes get your magnesium which for some reason is never included on the complete or basic metabolic i don't know why it's important whatever so you get to specifically order magnesium and then um you know you get your telemetry your ekg um with the hypocalcemia you want to look for prolonged qt intervals and for the hyperkalemia you look for your peak t waves um these people also if they ingest you know there's a lot of possible 
uh, airway compromise when they're throwing up or when they uh, have uh, like esophageal dysmotility or esophageal sphincter uh, spasms and they're just having these secretions and excessive salivation. You want to protect their airway. But if you're intubating them, you can't use your neuromuscular blockading agents. Really quick edit here. I accidentally left out an important word, and that word is depolarizing. Depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agents are the ones you do not want to use. Because, you know, again, you got to be worried about hyperkalemia. So this is, this is one of those times where you're not going to reach for succinylcholine. Correct. Um, and I, and I have to, I have to read this entirety, uh, from Gold Franks. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, topical decontamination compound that's available commercially called hexafluorine. And, and I'm just going to read this ber- verbatim. Uh, the compound hexafluorine is promoted for dermal and ophthalmic decontamination and hydrofluoric splashes. Hexafluorine is a proprietary name whose chemical formula is not disclosed and papers that report success have strong ties to the manufacturer. In a controlled and blinded experimental study, hexafluorine treatment was less effective than irrigation with water followed by application of topical calcium. In a follow-up animal study, water irrigation was as effective as hexafluorine in preventing systemic toxicity from hydrofluoric acid. At this time, until further objective data are available, we do not recommend the use of hexafluorine for initial decontamination of patients with hydrofluoric acid exposure. This is, this is as politely written in academic terminology as possible to say, don't buy this shit. (laughs) <laughs> don't 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 use this. This is just use just use water to use your use your calcium. How do we how do we get the hexafluorine to the ivermectin hydroxychloroquine <laughs> crowd to focus on next? Buddy, buddy, you're doing it right now. As soon as somebody hears that, they're gonna run wild with it. Uh, hang on, we gotta take a break. I need to buy some stock. <laughs> um, parody. That is parody. Uh, and then the the last uh, section that they mention in uh, in management of uh, fluoride toxicity is um, what I'm what I'm going to call the bit by a zombie approach uh, to management. They say one report describes a woman who was dying from severe hydrofluoride toxicity who was treated by amputation of the affected limb and survived. Although this may be an alternative measure for patients who are critically ill and demonstrate an inadequate response to all other therapeutic modalities, we do not recommend such aggressive measures. Well, that's good that we're not going to that as first line, at least. Yeah, that that's like and when you're at that point, like, you know, you, you, you can't really Monday morning quarterback whoever's making the decisions. Nobody knows what was what was going on except for the person is theirs. But man, if you're at a you're at a, a, a position where you have to consider amputation because somebody touched something and now it's destroying their whole body. That's that should give you an idea of just how toxic this stuff can be. Wow. Yeah. You don't want to eat this in your eggs. That's for sure. And then another another uh, thing uh, that's mentioned on management is a lot of times when when somebody swallows something that's caustic or, or extremely uh, uh, damaging, you know, there's this hesitancy, appropriately so, of of putting an NG tube down there to suck it out. Now, obviously, you don't want to just straight up induce vomiting because now what comes out is going to be worse than what came in. Uh, but even an NG tube can, can irritate and, you know, worst case scenario perforates the gastric, uh, mucosa. 
and you just make the problem worse. But the considerations here, or I guess the arguments here, is that f- systemic fluoride toxicity is so bad that if you if you get there in time, uh, NG tube uh, decontamination of the stomach might actually be worth it, uh, worth the risk of that perforation. Because if you can get you know this stuff out, it it, it can save you a lot of trouble down the line. That's good to know because when I tried to up to date this, there's just nothing. <laughs> there's I was like, all right, we're gonna do this. I need to learn and be and contribute here. So I went on up to date. I looked up sodium fluoride toxicity, acute sodium fluoride poisoning, any of that. There's nothing. Real quick, there is no article on up to date for sodium fluoride toxicity, but there is a section in the topical chemical burns article that does deal with hydrofluoric acid and systemic effects of hydrofluoric acid toxicity. Check it out. So yeah, so uh, calcium chloride is kind of your mainstay of, of treatment here. You you just you know, dump a lot of it in the person um, and you know, try to bind up all that fluoride ion that you can. Um, other methods uh, that have been discussed uh, is alkalizing the urine to, to help excrete fluoride. Fluoride's almost entirely excreted by the kidneys. And what's our favorite uh, urine alkalization agent but our good friend sodium bicarb, uh, which can be useful because these patients are also uh, hyperkalemic uh, as well. And you, you can help provide some pr- protection from that front. Uh, the the issue or I guess the, the, the nursing concerns here is obviously you cannot run calcium chloride and sodium bicarb in the same line because you don't want to infuse limestone into your patient. Yeah. Turning your uh, patient into the thing is like a bad <laughs> move. And we're talking, it's, we're talking fantastic for the thing. Yeah. 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 It's uh that's a Jayco does not like that uh, at all. Um, and, and, you know, we're all talking about this stuff, but I would be immediately calling poison control and just letting them tell me everything. Absolutely. Always call poison control for anything. Even if you think you got it managed, call poison control because uh, they need to they're going to monitor these cases for as long as uh, as they need monitoring. Um, and then the the other thing uh, that is absolutely incredible that I think I, I can't think of any other cases where this is like the the first line uh, or like the 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 standard operating procedure, but for um, uh, dermal exposures, particularly on hands, because uh, that's where most people are going to spill their stuff. They spill it on their hands. Um, when you have like hydrofluoric acid exposure on the hands, they will actually recommend putting in an art line to the, to that and the wrist of that effective hand and directly administering calcium chloride uh, or calcium gluconate, I guess, through that art line. And just dump as much calcium directly into those digits. And if you, if you go online, you, you search for fluoride toxicity arterial line, you'll see, you know, some of the, the classic pictures of this. It looks like the, the fingertips are this like gray, dusky, uh, like white, uh, discoloration. And that, that's precipitation. That's, that's the fluoride precipitating the, the calcium in the, in those extremities. Uh, so, uh, I, I, to my knowledge, that's like one of the only or one of the few indications for medicine infusion, uh, through an art line. Wow. That is, uh, intense. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like, you know, it, you need to get the calcium in there. 
calcium. And, and then, of course, calcium gluconate powder. You mix it with uh, some KY jelly or the or the ultrasound jelly or whatever they have and put that in a glove and then put the glove over the hand. So you get some uh, topical absorption of the calcium. That's right. Who needs a compounding pharmacy when you can just grab some uh, aquasonic gel and just slap it on a glove and, and put some powder in there? That's good. That's right. That's right. That's that's uh, that's going the extra mile. Um, I think one other thing to talk about here is just, you know, there was a scenario where you have this unlabeled bucket of white powder accessible in the hospital kitchen with an untrained person assisting in creating food for all of the patients. And this is obviously not something that would ever happen today. No. So, you know, these, the, the compliance training that so many people have to do and the extensive labeling chemicals, all these kinds of things, um, keeping chemicals away from, you know, the hospital kitchen, things like that, all because of a scenario like this, a worst case scenario where you just have someone who is completely well intentioned who accidentally assists in the or who accidentally allow i don't want to give this person agency for this thing but you know what i mean the, the scenario happens where so many people uh get poisoned and 47 people died um it's actually there's another case i don't do you want to talk about the other um the other case report we had real quick from just a yeah. couple from like 30 years later yeah i, I got a i got a, a synopsis of that this is uh Another paper uh, called <laughs> Acute Sodium Fluoride Poisoning. because the exact could, same title. Same okay. title. You from, cannot do that anymore. <laughs> from 1972. Uh, this was uh, the, the case of a 25-year-old man uh, who swallowed 120 grams of roach powder, uh, later determined to be about 97% sodium fluoride in composition. And remember, we said, you know, five to 10 grams to even as little as three grams is considered like a lethal dose. Uh, and this guy, you know, went immediate distress, he had nausea, vomiting, copious salivation. Uh, and an hour later started having tetanic contractions and respiratory arrest leading to uh, ventricular fibrillation. Uh, they did have more critical care services at this time, uh, uh, which becomes clear because they intubated him, uh, performed external cardiac massage, gave him some calcium gluconate and mag sulfate. And for the next 12 hours, he was cardioverted 63 times. That's got to be a record. I that I. I don't know how things were done back then or, or how things, and it, it doesn't seem to be like they were all in a row. It, it would seem they would get as, it, it read, it reads like they get his, uh, Ross back and a couple minutes later he'd do it again and then they'd have to cardiovert him. So they start him on a, a, a lidocaine drip and they eventually said, you know, we can't just keep cardioverting this guy. Let's, let's give him an atrial pacemaker. So he got intravenous pacing. They set it at 120 beats per minute to see if they could capture it, which, I'm not a cardiologist. I don't know, you know, the, or electrophysiologist. I, I don't know the specifics on that. And maybe they didn't either, but that seems, you know, they did what they had to do. And eventually he stopped going into VFib. Um, they started giving him massive doses of calcium and magnesium. Uh, by the 40th shock, his EKG was starting to show signs of an anterior MI. Uh, was this due to the fluoride or was this due to the guy just keep going into VFib and, you know, again and again and again, who can tell? Uh, at this time now, pupils are fixed and dilated. Uh, they kept giving him fluids, diuretics, and more calcium and lidocaine. And after 12 hours of this, he finally starts responding to verbal stimuli. 
And when he could speak, uh, he said, I can't swallow. And then on the third day, after things calmed down, they get an esophagram. Uh, this shows he has complete blockage of his pharyngoesophageal junction. So he gets a feeding tube in his gut. And then about 30 days later, he can swallow again. What's fascinating to me, uh, and what I uh, forgot to mention earlier, was when they finally did examine his esophageal mucosa after, you know, uh, after a while, it was completely normal. There were no, there, there was no like structural strictures or, or burns or anything like that. And one of the things that was mentioned was that like, this stuff, the sodium fluoride doesn't really seem to irritate the esophagus as, as long as it like stays down, you know, uh, uh, long enough. I know this guy was, was vomiting, but even still his esophagus didn't show a lot of damage. And my, my speculation on the matter was this like severe esophageal sphincter spasm that was, I'm going to guess something to do with calcium mediation. Like it, like, with the smooth muscle around it because it went back to normal and he could swallow just fine. I, that's crazy to me. Uh, if anybody has a better explanation, feel free to send it to us and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, other notable lab values, uh, his pH went down to 6.9 uh, and he received a total of 610 milliequivalents of bicarb. Uh, which over the 12 hours, which is about an amp of bicarb every hour. That's, that's, that's a good amount. That's, I just, the, the, the 60 something cardio versions, that's gotta be a record. Yeah. And, and then to, and then to come out of it, to be and like come out of it. walking around at some point after that is really remarkable. I mean, and in the seventies too, like just yeah. incredible, incredible case study. Yeah. So he, he came out. Okay. Uh, as, uh, you know, he had a bunch of other, um, laboratory abnormalities but he eventually came back uh doing all right so kudos to that uh resuscitation team they 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 did it all they gave it everything and they 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 got a real win out of it yeah can you imagine that some some you know em doc comes up to the bars like about to start talking about that crazy resuscitation they had and then some guys like no no no, sit down (laughs) all right let me tell you about 63 cardio versions guy (laughs) um yeah, I think one other note that I just want to point out is, and it's in the original case report we talked about, is this is literally not the only time that breakfast food and no. this acute poisoning have happened. So there was a Salvation Army breakfast in 1940 where they accidentally put sodium fluoride into the pancakes and like 12 people died. So there's something about breakfast food and sodium fluoride that's – someone needs to look into that. So I, I, I didn't search, uh, quite a bit, um, before this. I probably should have, but, you know, all of these cases are mentioning that, uh, sodium fluoride was used as, as roach poison. And I don't know if that's still the case. I don't know if you can buy sodium fluoride as, as roach poison. If, if I find an answer to it, I'll, I'll, you know, edit this in and put it in, but it doesn't seem to me that that's like, uh, used much anymore. There's, there's gotta be safer alternatives, but I mean, one of the, one of the big problems with all of this is sodium fluoride. It's, it's chemical and physical properties. It's a pretty boring powder. You know, it, it doesn't have, it's a white, you know, colorless powder. It doesn't have any offensive odors or an odor of any type. And, you know, if you have a plate of, you know, sodium fluoride and sodium bicarb, they look the same. Or even powdered milk. It looks pretty similar to a, to a rushed, uh, overworked, uh, volunteer. Uh, 
And the other problem uh, that this case had national repercussions for is the box that it comes in does not say this is poisonous. I mean, it says roach poison, but it doesn't say like if humans eat this, this is bad news too. Uh, and so after this case happened and there was, you know, their big investigation and they found the mix up, uh, shortly after it became a national law that, yay, if you have poisonous materials, you need to put this, you need to put a poison label on the, on the packaging to indicate it. And as I was reading this article for the very first time, my thought was like this whole thing could be avoided if they just put some food coloring in it, put, make it purple. What, what the hell is a purple powder? Nobody would eat that. And I'm happy to see that at the very end, that was the author's suggestion as well. Like you should make this look not natural. You should make this look like obviously not like these, these kitchen items, these food items that we have. And, um, so that, that's, Kind of what the big fallout of this was, was the change in manufacturing labeling of these toxic substances. That's right. You heard it here first. Make it look brightly colored so kids will eat it. Make it look like candy. <laughs> That's exactly what you should do. No. Well, so keep it labeled in the box with the proper labeling. Yeah. Obviously now labeling has serious, you know, there's serious regulation on, on toxicity labels. You have the, you know, the diamond with corrosivity, all those things. Or or do Um, what they do with natural gas where they could put that like sulfur odorant in it. You know, you, you, you can't smell natural gas. You smell the additives that they put in, make it stinky. You know, it doesn't need to, doesn't need to be palatable or, I mean, it, it wasn't, but they didn't know that until it was already in their mouth and too late. Well, I mean, sometimes I just, you know, I'll just turn on the stove on the, on the light function and just leave it because I like the smell. (laughs) That's, that's, that kind of, uh, activity is what led me here to doing this podcast with you. Um, so I think one more, one final point here is, uh, so many years later in the New York Times, there was an obit for the patient volunteer. And I use volunteer maybe kind of in square, scare quotes because I don't know how voluntary these things were, how coercive it was, whether it was part of treatment, whatever. But this, uh, unfortunately, this patient was, this was a patient in the, um, psychiatric hospital who as far as i can tell had limited capacity was doing this job and just kind of inadvertently caused this poisoning this patient actually died in a facility years later after an altercation with another patient so this patient was 68 years later was killed by a 75 year old patient just kind of a just very sad story and i think um i want to focus here not on i don't want to mention the name it's in the obituary it's pretty easy to find um But I think I just want to focus on how – and I think with all of these case reports, an important thing we want to do is we want to focus on – we're studying medicine here and we're not here to gawk at any uh, patient or people involved. We're looking at the history of medicine and how things have have changed and and ideally improved. Yeah, I I, I can't say it better myself. Uh, There's there's a lot I think in the history of medicine and everybody kind of knows this – but once you really start looking at the language of these historical documents, you really see how things were perceived, how people were considered, how people were treated. Um, you, you, and if you, you get a little subtext, too, of the, the power dynamics at play between physicians and, and patients. And it, it's important to recognize that and it's important to address that. And I think that's one of the big goals that that we have is to really kind of review 
and relook at these older cases that are in many ways the foundations upon modern medicine today. Yeah, and I think there are there are still people who kind of lament the loss of that kind of profound gravitas that that physicians once commanded and I think it's important to point out that even though maybe they do make some valid, you know, like with vaccine hesitancy things like that having that gravitas back might have been useful but I, I think it comes at a cost as well. So, yeah. Um I think that's it. I think that's a good place to call it. Yeah, I guess I just have one more question for you since we were on electrolytes. All right, if you had to give up one electrolyte, what would it be? <laughs> chloride. I was going to say, it. yeah, what does it do? Can you survive without chloride? Yeah, the only thing you need chloride for is to calculate an anion gap. That's, that's it. R- yes, that's it. That's yeah. all it serves for. Useless, useless electrolyte. Pointless. All right. All right. Well, that's that's good. Um, you know, I think we never really formally introduced ourselves, so we can either do it now or we can cut it into the front. Um, obviously, you're everyone's favorite major star on uh, Twitter that isn't uh, also on TikTok, which is you are Dr. Um, Screaming Pectoriloquy. Uh, my name is Thomas Knott. I'm a hyper responsible pre-med um, and uh, I'm just I kind of became interested in this stuff. So we decided to, to work on this. Um, as always, any complaints, corrections, Please direct to uh, the office of Professor Doctor Mehmet Oz. That's at the <laughs> Columbia Department of uh, Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons Department of Surgery. He's faculty there, um, so please direct that that way. Um, and if you'd like to uh, follow our pod account, what is? Do you have that uh, that account up yet? Oh, uh, I should. It's what is it? It's Caduceus Wild Pod. Caduceus. Yeah. So I- I'll I'll put the real name in. We'll we'll put it all in the show notes and maybe in the next episode we'll actually know that. Um, (laughs) And then obviously we'll have a Patreon up. If you want to subscribe, we're going to be doing 12 episodes a week, one one, uh, public episode and then 11 private episodes every week. And that is just $25 a month. So you can subscribe to that. Um, (laughs) We're going to make this lucrative because, uh, you know, we clearly invested lots of lots of time and and research in this. Please give us money. Yeah. So anyways, that's been fun. Um, you know, next time I think we're going to talk about a different case. I'm not sure which one, but you know, we'll keep working with the format. And then I think eventually our goal is to have, uh, have other experts on here to come kind of weigh in on some cool stuff. People who actually know what they're talking about and didn't just skim the article 30 minutes before uh, recording. That's correct. None of this is medical advice. None of this is legally actionable. Um, please do not try to find us. Yes. Uh, please, please don't uh, listen to anything I said. Uh, this ent- I didn't say it. Um, I, I take it all back. Uh, I, I don't. I That's renounce right. medicine. Uh, I, I renounce electrolytes. Chloride is great. Cool. Yes. All hell chloride. All right. Thank you, everyone. We will. Uh, we will check in next time. So I think we can, we can probably cut right around here. 